Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, an editor at Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. And today I'm joined by two of our great authors and editors, Derek Jepson and Stephen Carter. Uh, Derek, also known as Eric W. Jepson, is the editor of Iriantum, the literary journal of the Association for Mormon Letters, and the proprietor of the publishing house, Peculiar Pages. He is the author of many poems and short stories, as well as two novels, To Be Determined Pronunciation, I'll Say Byuk, and Just Julie's Fine. We're also joined by Stephen Carter, the author of Virginia Sorensen, pioneering Mormon author, and the editor of Sunstone, a position he's held since 2008. He's the author of the essay collection, Word of the Night, and co-wrote the iPlate series of Book of Mormon graphic novels, as well as many other books. And he regularly publishes personal essays on the Sunstone podcast. Eric and Stephen, welcome. Hi, Andrew. Always good to see you. So the reason that we came together today is, uh, the immediate reason is that Derek will have published this month his new novel, Just Julie's Spine, which is kind of a sequel to his first novel. And so we want to talk about that. And it's a very funny novel. And both Derek and Steve are very funny authors. I, I love the humor they put in. So I thought today we could talk about that new novel and just to talk about humor in general in writing, humor as Mormon authors, and whatever else comes up. So maybe we'll start uh, there. Why do you so often, not always, but very often use humor in your writing? What is, what is that? I mean, you wrote the funny people, I know that, but not all funny people put funny things in their writing. Why do you like to put that into your writing? Well, there's a lot of possible answers to that. Here's here's a couple uh, to start us off. One, like, everybody likes humor. So a book with a bit of humor is a better book. Uh, there's an anecdote I tell my students. I haven't confirmed this for myself, but I had a, a teacher, a professor once upon a time tell me they were in London uh, and a very serious group of young thespians was putting on Macbeth. And Macbeth's already the shortest tragedy, but they took out all the funny stuff because they really wanted it to be dark and serious. And the result was the audience could not stop laughing. I don't care if the story is true. I like the story. I, we need humor in everything, even in Macbeth, or it just doesn't work. Like art requires a bit of humor. So so that's that's a possible answer. Another possible answer is that I just like it. Um, I just do. And a third possible answer is maybe I can't avoid it. Um, I wrote a, a novella which was published about a decade ago um, with the, I'm really good at titling things, but this particular one is titled uh, Perky Erect Nipples. And I gave it that title because I wanted, I, I as an artistic challenge to myself, I wanted to see if I could take the most absurd, stupid, ridiculous phrase I could think of and give it real emotional weight by the end of the story. That was the goal. And I don't know if I succeeded or not. Not very many people have read it. But I I did hear back from one reader who was uh, at a cafe in D.C. reading it and just laughing her head off, which I wasn't trying to be funny. I knew I knew it wasn't like void of humor, but it I wasn't trying to be funny. So I've just learned that I should embrace what I'm good at. And one of the things I'm good at is, you know, the tools of humor. And so since I understand them and I know how to deploy them, I'm not going to ignore them. So there you go. Three possible answers. I like that. Stephen, how about you? Why do you like to use humor in your writing? I guess what you're saying there, Theric, is that uh, we need to put a little bit of humor in our tragedy so that people can tell the difference between humor and tragedy. 
because in the end, something to that really is <laughs> very little space between humor and tragedy. But uh, it was interesting that she asked me that because, of course, I started out kind of my public career as a writer, writing for the Sugar Beat, which was just little tiny, like 400 word humorous articles. And that's one thing. But ever since then, I've been writing sort of longer things. And I looked back and saw that it indeed, I do write uh, things that are punctuated with humor. Usually my stuff isn't pure humor, but is rather punctuated with it. And I thought, why do I do that? And of course, my first answer was, I like it, but that's boring. So I thought about it a little bit more. And I realized that my brain was trying to do something with my writing. It was trying to make my writing better somehow with the humor. And I was trying to figure out what my brain thought was better about punctuating things with humor. And I came up with with a theory that I have just recently, within that last half hour, called the salted caramel and psychedelic theory. So the, the, the basic idea is that the reason why I like to put humor in and why I think humor is an effective uh, rhetorical tool is because um, what it does is it takes a story or something serious and if you put some humor into it, that suddenly you have something that's of a contrasting flavor. And what that does is that it makes the other thing, um, you, you can taste it better, and you can also taste it in contrast, which gives it an extra layer. So that's salted caramel, right? Because we've got caramel, which is sweet, and then the salt, which is salty. You bring them together, you can taste both, and they do something interesting together. So I think that that's one thing that humor does when it's not in a purely humorous context. And the second is the psychedelic theory, which is, I think that, so so when we're young and we're babies and children and stuff, apparently our brains are wired so that there are all kinds of connections to all sorts of parts of the brains. And as you grow up, you sort of prune those back and you have little neural superhighways that you sort of use most often. And so psychedelics apparently sort of open up a lot of those those pathways that you had earlier, which is why you kind of freaked out and you're seeing all the stuff. And so what I'm thinking is when you add in a piece of humor to help us see a concept in a slightly different way, then you're sort of setting out one tendril that people are not expecting, which gives them an extra thing to an extra perspective to see with. And so in both cases, you get to see sort of a 3D or maybe a 4D or 17D version of the thing that you were trying to get across in the first place. So that's what I think is the rhetorical reason why my brain thought that putting in humor was a good idea, though I did not have any of these theories in my mind as I was writing. I was just writing it because I liked it. Can I ask you a question, Stephen? No. Uh, so I'm going to anyway. But it it seems to me like this is this is something that I think about a lot as being a writer and being an editor of my own work, like in the rewriting process. Um, 
how conscious does this process become as you work your way to the final draft? I have no idea what your drafting process is like, but <laughs> depends on what I'm writing. How conscious am, am I of putting humor in, in, in into things? Well, how, how does your consciousness of it evolve from the first draft where your brain is sticking stuff in to make it function rhetorically to the final draft where you're making sure everything is functioning as your subconscious mind originally intended? Very good. The humor always comes in last. That's very interesting. I've never thought of that before. Usually I outline things and get a very rough go and then I kind of put it all, all together. And as it gets refined, I see the humorous poss possibilities. How about you? How do you do it? Is everything funny to begin with? Or are you just it, nat naturally funny? It depends a lot on the project. So something, something like Just Julie's Fine, which allegedly we're talking about, which I feel really self-conscious about, but that's okay. Maybe that's what humor is for, is to allow me you to can be totally consistent. No worries. <laughs> but um, something like that is, a, like, each section is attempting something different, but each section is also attempting to be funny. And so, like, the first one, a lot of the humor happens through the narrative voice and um, through footnotes and so forth. And then the second one is also through narrative voice, but it's through these uh, th through a lot of verbal irony and characters who don't really understand themselves very well. And things like that are definitely humorous all the way through. And I think what I find, the process is I have to find that voice. And if I can find the voice, then I don't really write jokes per se. Um, what I what I do is I, I find a voice or a uh, rhetorical mode or something that is of itself humorous, and then I give it momentum and I just keep following it and see where it goes. Although, of course, that's something to find in the rewriting. And I must admit, that second chapter with the twins, just, I was I was laughing. It was very, very Life. funny. Thank you. Well, I like it when people laugh. <laughs> well, let's, let's take this opportunity. Tell us, can maybe give us a, uh, a pitch, a, a slight, a short description of the two novels. Uh, if you could tell us. Sure. Pilots. So, um, we're, we're so we... We, yeah, so the first we go to bed down here. Yeah. Andrew and I have two different uh, pronunciations of his first book. So go ahead. Let's see who wins. So, so I have a, of the opinion that once the book is published, the author is dead. So it doesn't really matter how I say it. So as far as I'm concerned, you're both correct. But I pronounce it Byuk. That's how I say it. Yes. Yeah, Louis. Why you? No, it, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. Uh, that's why the author's dead. Because who should care what I think? Like <laughs> people should not have neuroses over what the author thinks the title of the book is. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so it's a story of um, a young college student named Dave and his attempt to write a rock opera with his friend. He doesn't want to believe it, but the book he is in is a romantic comedy, and he spends most of the book trying to believe that's not the case. Just Julie's Fine is about his sister, as she's the only character who appears in both books. And it takes place five years later. Now, she's a sophomore in at the university, just like Dave was previously. She's a little younger because she didn't serve a mission. But uh, she thinks she's living in a romantic comedy, but she's not. And so her book is, is the journey of her discovering what kind of story she's actually in. That makes it sound a lot more meta than the books really are. But uh, that that's essentially, I would say, contrasting them. That's the difference. Lots of fun use of, I mean, the, the, the first book, uh, there's 
uses of different kinds of texts that brought in, like people who are writing to uh, the main, the protagonist. And in the second book, each chapter is told roughly from a different character's point of view. So they're both yeah. yes, interesting things with, uh, with form. The first book of the two is, I think, but the funniest throughout, or at least it has a, has a similar tone throughout, since it's mostly told for, from the same point of view. While the second book, with all these different uh, point of view characters, uh, the early chapters are very funny, and then in the middle you have some some less funny chapters with some much more serious things going on. So that was, and I'm I'm kind of wondering, is that shift from a more more kind of deliberately funny through the whole thing to a book that has lots of different tones. Is that reflective of kind of changes in you and the author over the years between writing the two books? Oh, that's an interesting question. And I honestly don't know how to answer that. I will say that they, they say that, I don't know who they is, but they say that the first novel is auto always autobiographical. And Yuck isn't really about me, but there's so much of me in it. And depending on how you know me, um, you probably think either Dave is based on me or Curses is based on me. Um, that's what I've discovered is depending on how people know me, they have a different opinion about which character is autobiographical. But I think there is something a little bit more personal in Byuk, uh, maybe more narcissistic, if you will. Uh, but Julie is kind of what I'm, I think, reflects more of what my interests are when it comes to what I see in other people, like things that I find interesting in other people. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think that's fair to say. Um, I also think it's to to build on this idea you were saying about how the different chapters are more or less funny. I I would totally agree with that. I and I'm going to go into my own vocabulary here, but I would say that every chapter uses the tools of humor, but not all of them are funny. Like to me, funny is using the tools of humor in a way to like get the reaction where somebody laughs or or you know that's funny. But but you can use the tools of humor to other effects. And so things like irony, for instance, uh, don't necessarily have to be funny, but they can still allow you to interact with the text in a humorous way. Okay. And also, between kind of comparing the two again, both of which I loved, let me just say again, but um, as far as the Mormonism in the books, um, the first book, it's at BYU and everyone's Mormon and maybe not forefronted, but it's, it's, you know, the, the people are, are living their religion or some people, uh, Dave is, is, his religion is, is part of his life and it's it's clearly important to him. And not much else is said about Mormonism besides just seeing them live their lives without much explanation. You know, there's nothing given to, you know, someone who doesn't know this stuff. It's just all presented as this is a Mormon life. Uh, the second one, just to be fun, has is a lot more. I mean, again, maybe not directly about Mormonism per se, but the some of the issues like LGBTQ issues and race and heavenly mother and the difficulties this causes for some of these young students uh, comes up a lot more in that. Again, I'm wondering is that kind of a change in your interests over the years, or what does that reflect? Oh, uh, you may have to edit out a pause here as I think about that question because it's a good question. I think as a Latter-day Saint culture, unless you're very happy and comfortable with the space available under rocks, 
it's become impossible to ignore a lot of things. And I, I do feel, I mean, the books take place in 2000, 2005, which, which really aren't that far apart, but I do think there's a big difference, um, between LDS youth, between those two, de- those two years and, and even more so to now, almost 20 years later. Um, I do think that these are questions that you can't just ignore them or pretend they're not there. They, they fill up a lot of the space of our, there, there's only so much space in one day for one's religion. And these things take a percentage of that space and we can't pretend they don't. Um, and I think that the time of life in which you're figuring out who you are and what you care about and what you're going to spend your life doing, those are years in which those things have to be navigated. And the people who don't navigate them have a crisis later on. And not not that uh, crises are necessarily bad or that when they happen younger, they're not a crisis. But when you're young, you have the, the flexibility and the tools to explore things and, and go down roads and still be able to find your way um, to another road, I think. Does that make sense? Stephen, this is your expertise. You published lots of things on these topics. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, you wrote the book, <laughs> but I will say, I do wonder if I wrote the book today, how it would be different. Because uh, I wrote Just Julie's Fine about 10 years ago. It's just coming out now. And Bjork was written in 2004. And so they they do reflect, I'm, like, I'm trying to make, both books I began before they were the present. So they were both near future um science fiction, I guess, when I started writing them. But by the time they came out, they were recent and past. And I do think that just just from my perspective as the writer, that that I feel very much like they capture something about what it was like to see something before it happens, before it happens, and the writing process goes from before it happens, through it happening, and it doesn't really finish, and publication doesn't happen until a decade after it's over. Um, it's just, an, it's an interesting process to be able to see the book in all those different dates. Steve, do you have any uh, comments or questions about books? Well, I feel like we would uh, sort of be wasting the entire episode if we if someone didn't read a few things from Buke and yes, Yuli's fine. So uh, here are a few of my favorite parts. One is Dave walked over to the blinking light and stabbed it gently, like pagan sacrifice was something he really only did on Sundays. Here's another one. Dave was sitting on the couch, suffering from emotional potluck. (laughs) (laughs) I love that one. Though he spoke of being glad his sister and her baby were okay, he was sullen and walked in and, in and out of doors all morning. Ref sat down by Lorraine, who was a five-year-old girl. How big is your mommy? She's a giant. No, I mean, how pregnant is she? Lorraine considered this. Like a horse, baby? I really need to recommend this book. Um, I think this is one of the no. Oh, okay, and, and 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 here's one that is laser focused 
on a Mormon audience? Not really. Ref sat down on the couch and put her feet up on the hot chocolate table. I sort of had this boy in the dorms, and I even was going to let him be my missionary for about 30 seconds, until I realized that was stupid. Now, only a Mormon would even know what she was talking about. And this is one of kind of the amazing things to me about Buke, is that um, it was written for such a small audience. I mean, of course you wanted to have everybody think you're a genius, but if we're looking at it realistically, only a Mormon audience would understand the thorough genius going on underneath pretty much every sentence. And uh, the other thing that's really interesting about it, and yes, Yuli's fine, is that both of them are about how how purity culture and marriage culture sort, sort of combined to create really strange people. Because in Buke, uh, the main character, what's his name? James? The David? Dave. Dave. He's completely cut off from his body. Whenever he feels something that like borders on sexual, he like freaks out and he freezes up and he backs off or he's just, and, and he's always saying, I'm better than this. I'm better than this. He's totally a purity culture guy. And then at the end, <laughs> toward the end, Curses is trying to persuade Dave, Dave, that this particular girl is right for him. And he's like, how do you know? How do you know? And he's like, no, no, Dave, Dave, Dave is saying, but that's so base to want to marry a girl and be in love with her. It's just all about, you know, the body. And Curses says, all right, describe this girl to, to me. And he describes her face and he says, all right, now go below the line of her neck. What's down there? And it totally freaks Dave out. He can't even conceive of it. He feels like he's like dropping into the abyss to think about a female below the neckline. It's very, very strange. And yet he's in this marriage culture where there's this other roommate named X who could be probably any one of three people who are all engaged and somehow going into this land of sex. And then there's Peter, very aptly named, because that's what he follows the entire time, who bases his dates on how far he's able to physically get with the girl, because that means what a good relationship it, 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 it'll be when he gets married. And so it's all about purity culture and how these college males in BYU are trying to deal with it and marriage. And then we go to Yes, Yuli's Fine, and it's about the same thing, except that it's about the girl who is totally cut off from her body because her body is so beautiful and all the boys around her just want a piece of it. She like dates three guys a night or something. It's and you really have to read the chapter with the twins. It is so funny. And in the end, she finds out that she would like to stay in, that she would like to come out of her body and go into her mind, thank you very much, and not get married, even though getting married is her entire goal the entire time. So it is a fascinating glimpse into the BYU purity and 
marriage culture and how it affects males and females. And in Yes, Julie's Fine, it even starts to go into the LGBTQ community, which is also very interesting. I highly recommend both. You just watched, Eric. Your sales are going to go through the roof. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Um, that was really beautiful. Thank you. Um, I have a, I have a sort of a follow up question. Um, if I can remember it, I'm I'm floating in flattery, but <laughs> um, you did spend years writing those books. You deserve a couple minutes. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I well, here's so just talking about Mormon literature, basically, uh, more or generally, I mean, talking about Mormon literature generally, I one of the reasons that I've embraced it writing for my own culture is that I do think there are things we can do when we get that specific that we can't do anywhere else. Um, and when it comes to like the humor, like I. I, I figure if somebody's getting like 70% of the jokes, they're doing great uh, because it is really dense, especially especially in Biak. Uh And I hope that nobody feels left out for the things where they can see something's happening, but they don't get the joke and, and that's fine. But that density can't happen without a shared culture. That's that's something that can only be done in a literature that is, that's I don't want to say insular because other people have read the book and enjoyed it. Uh, but there's a, there's a level of of understanding that can only come when you have that shared culture between writer and reader. Yeah, that's totally true. And you make uh, great use of that. Your your description of the book as dense is very good. If you're saying it's humorously dense, which means that it's like every sentence has some little twist in it that if you can see it. You can see it. Yeah. It's so much fun to read that book. This is the second time that I read it. I read it back when it first came out. I loved it then. And then when I saw it was coming out again, went back and read it again. And I was in the middle of it when Andrew was inspired to call to to uh, email me and say, hey, we should talk about pink. And I said, all right, I'm there. And then I got a free copy of Yes, Yuli's Fine. So I came in and Everything worked out okay. I also like. I gotta say, like, it was great to hear you read the lines. Um, that this is me promoting myself again. But um, Stephen recently published in Sunstone uh, a couple of my Mormon Socrates pieces, and then you recorded them, and it was such a pleasure to hear them in someone else's voice, and how how the humorous aspects just play different when somebody else is reading it. I just that was that was great. So thank Did you. I read it differently than you would have? Uh, yeah. I mean, not that much. I mean, there's only so many ways to read something. But yeah, it's different. And um, I loved it. Oh, okay. Sure. Well, Socrates. Well, it's like, oh, it was funny. The best example of a deadpan Mormon humor I've come across in decades. And Stephen reading it just add, added a great uh, level to it, too. So it's on the, the Sunstone uh, podcast feed. I highly yeah. and available in Just definitely go listen to it. Uh, well, so we're talking about purity culture in BYU and just and commenting on on BYU culture, and so then in Just Julie's Fine, uh, where now we're focusing on the girls at BYU, and a big part of that is this assumption that I mean, Julie is so smart and so able and so many things, but she just 
she fails to notice these assumptions that are given to her and she just lies with it. These assumptions that she's supposed to make all these boys happy and go on dates with them. And this assumption, when, when someone says, oh, you should study family, uh, family studies, nutrition as, as a woman, that's a good major for you, when clearly she has some different abilities and different passions. Can you tell us a little about that? This is to, to, to look at those questions. Uh, sure. Just um, th- I, something I think is interesting in literature generally is characters who can't see as much as the audience can see. I just, I love that style of irony, but it's also not interesting when characters are just stupid and they just, you know, they can't understand what's going on in the romance uh, field. They have, they have this um, initialism. They like TSTL, which means too stupid to live, which is a character in romance who just does incredibly dumb things. And the only reason is to advance the plot. Like it doesn't make sense that anyone could be that dumb. Uh, and so I think that's a really interesting challenge for the writer is how do you have someone who is really interesting and intelligent and worth spending your time with, and yet there's things the audience knows about them that they don't know about themselves. And and that's kind of what you were describing. Like Julie, Julie knows a lot about herself, but she can't see how it might all fit together in a way that makes her happy. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know. I've uh, lost what I was going to ask. Well, okay. Maybe let, let's, let's well, shift over. Oh, go ahead, please. Oh, so I, I, I don't know where you're headed, but I, I can change the topic if you like. Yeah, sure. <laughs> or I can read a few lines from Yes, Yuli's Fine. Yes. Which is also. <laughs> Why? I mean, you keep saying yes. It's just Julie's. I thought it was Yes, Yuli's Fine. No. Okay, I'll do just Julie's. <laughs> All right. I wasn't going to call you on it. Like, he can say it however he likes. I thought the author was dead, despite the fact that he's talking to us. So when he's uh, describing Julie, when she walks down the street, birds call her name, and the sun smiles more broadly. I do not know how you will stand her. You should be skeptical. And then from another uh, person, but she's always saying things like patriarchy something something, and how our hormones are like the opiate of the masses, and that our apartment fails the Bechdel test? Whatever. I love stuff. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, look at that. I never realized holding a pen could be sultry. Does she give lessons? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> okay, I got one more. Okay, so they're talking about why one person received the gospel and why Snoop Dogg received a uh, pot. And so this is, they said, oh, missed it. Ah, I think I got this one. God can only give us what we're really ready for. You, being a kid of great wisdom and maturity, were given the gospel. Snoop Dogg, being less prepared, was given pot, a stepping stone, until he is ready for further enlightenment. Okay, and then for my favorite part. The twins had arranged for ward prayer to be at the brick house this week, so all the people they'd seen at church that morning were crammed into their living room. An excellent opportunity to be forced to fling legs over neighbors, to be smashed so tight as to feel the entire length of another against you, 
to sit on the floor between someone else's legs. A regular Mormon orgy. <laughs> this is a brilliant book, man. <laughs> also, can I just give permission for all writers out there? Like, it's okay to laugh at your jokes. Like, I was told you're not allowed to. Like, it's great. It's a good feeling. You should be able to laugh at what you think is funny. Oh, these are great jokes. And and I appreciate Stephen giving me the opportunity to laugh at them. <laughs> and and I, I love how, um, you know, these books are, I mean, so much great literature, more literature is told from the outside, you know, looking back at, at the time, you know, as a Mormon. But, you know, these books are told, they're, they're, they're so satirical and, and so they take such a jaundiced eye of uh, various aspects of particularly BYU Mormon life, but, but, but Mormon life in general. Um, but it, it never feels like you're an outsider taking pot shots. It, it's, it's, a, it's a loving look from the inside. And so I really like that. Yeah, I was just reading an interview with Greta Gerwig. I've read so many interviews of Greta Gerwig in the last couple weeks because I love Barbie so much. But um, in one of them, she was responding to uh, apparently, uh, is it Rob Thomas? Is that the lead singer of Match Twenty Match Rock Twenty? Yeah. He was he was uh, apparently a little offended by the use of his song in Barbie, and and she said like, no, like I included it because I love it. Like there's stuff that I make fun of. Like she makes fun of the Godfather in Barbie, for instance, but. I, it's only in the movie if I love it. And that's, that's how I feel about my writing. Like, yeah, I'm making fun of a lot of stuff in, in Bjork and just Julie's fine. Absolutely. I am, but I'm making fun of stuff that I'd love and it could be better. Yes, absolutely. But, but yeah, making fun is, I guess my language of love. So, well, it's a language of intimacy, right? Because you're sure. laughing at the same thing. You all find out that you have the same cultural connections, the same values, the same ways of being clever. So when you see it in each other and your brains work in the same way and the gears click and you click with each other, there's a lot of pleasure in that. It's true. And you also open up a lot of um a lot of possibilities. Your your humor is 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 very opening. It, it doesn't close down people's characters. It, it 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 gives them more interpretations. This is something that's true of your humor too, Stephen. Is that I I really try to avoid pointing arrows at what we're supposed to be laughing at and what's okay to laugh at. Um, I just put it there, and the audience could decide that it's funny if they want. Uh, and I think that's true of of your style also. That. There's a number of people who study humor, not a lot, because it's a hard thing to study. I don't know how you get funding for it, but I, I remember reading about a professor in Wired, this is maybe five, six years ago, and his basic theory is that humor is when you, uh, so imagine a Venn diagram, and in one circle is things that are safe, and the other circle is things that are dangerous, that break rules, that that offend, and, and, then, and then whatever's at the intersection of that Venn diagram, that's what's humorous. So... In order to make people laugh, in order to be funny, you have to like you have to be breaking the rules and being dangerous and saying things that aren't allowed to be said, and at the same time make your audience feel reasonably safe. And it's at that intersection where the best things happen. But obviously, that's a very difficult 
line to walk. Like it's, it's not, I'm sure my book is offensive to some people and I'm sure there are some people for whom it is so intensely safe that they, uh, refuse to be amused. But that's the goal is to, to push people outside of their comfort zone without, uh, making them fall off a cliff, I guess. Anyway, I like that theory of humor. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I've never heard that before. How about, could the two of you both um, give uh, the audience here some suggestions of other humorists that you admire, whose work you admire, and maybe, you know, non-Mormons as well, but at least one Mormon, say if, if you have two, at least one Mormon author too, that probably, you know, it's not a huge deal, a lot of people are aware of them, but if there's somebody who's that you admire. Derek, can I start? Sure. Uh, the most important work of Mormon humor for me personally is the novel The Invisible Saint by Curtis Taylor, which came out in the early 90s. Um, and it's been republished by Aspen Books. It's available. Uh, this book, I read it when I was a teenager. I read it multiple times. Uh, I was the first time I uh, we were on a road trip and I started reading the the prologue about a funeral out loud. And my dad almost crashed the car because he was laughing so hard. But this book really was important to me because it gave me permission to be a writer and a Mormon at the same time. And it's a very funny book, and I, I really like it. Um, a lot of the Curtis Taylor stuff since then is, is less humorous. I wish he would lean more into this because I, I think it's his best, his best work. But that's an absolute favorite for me. And I have to say, um, I think the arguably the funniest Mormon comics and at the moment are eye plates. Um, Steven's writing is great, but Jet's choices also for the art are really funny. Uh, there's competition out there like Garden of Enid and, and Matt Page's New Zion. There's competition, but I think eye plates the funniest. And so um, I'm going to recommend Steven also. Yeah, watch my sales go up, man. This is great. Steven uh, co-wrote the eye plate series with Jet Atwood, the artist. Hey, Stephen, how about you? Sorry, she has a last name. <laughs> um, one of my favorites is, uh, can't remember her name. You wrote it to us, and she wrote my favorite piece of Eloise Bell humor, Eloise Bell. I was lucky enough to get to work with her for the, the last few years of, of, of her life. She wrote a column for me at Sunstone. But she did what I think she pulled off to me what is the most death-defying feat of Mormon humor of all time, which was her her essay and dialogue where she switched the roles of males and females in a sacrament meeting. It was simultaneously hilarious and thought-provoking. And uh, she 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 did that. She found that little space. Well, at least for the dialogue crowd, I guess we should say that the dialogue crowd was the exactly the right audience. I don't know about the inside crowd, but go and find that. I'm not sure what it's called. How do we spell? It's called the meeting, and it's in the collection only when I laugh. That's right, and you can probably find it somewhere in dialogues. Arc uh, arc archives as well it's a piece to be rem remembered and uh my favorite mormon uh humorous novel is buke 
I don't know. What else am I supposed to say? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the only I'll take it. Yeah, I agree. No. I think the only uh, yeah competition is is Samuel Devil Taylor's Heaven Knows Why. Oh, oh you're it's a good bird. That's oh. all. That is such a funny look from the forties, from the nineteen forties. Yeah, it, it's a brilliant piece of work. All right, still funny. Yeah, that's amazing. Go and find that if you can. It is so funny and so it feels so current too. It 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 doesn't feel old, and it has all the bizarre things that 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 Mormons think about heaven. Isn't it weird that we all want to get to heaven, but when we think about heaven, we think, oh yeah, when we go up there, we're going to be in this great big hierarchy, and our job will be to work our way up that bureaucracy so that we can be somehow a leader and get a bigger mansion and more wives. And it's, it's, it's basically like heaven is the church office building, and you're trying to get to a higher and higher level. I'm not sure why we're so interested. <laughs> but yes, you're absolutely right. Heaven can wait. No, that's not what it's called. Heaven knows why. Heaven knows why. Right. Yeah, Samuel W. Taylor. He wrote uh, in Collier's, which is a you know a magazine for just the general public, uh, and then became a book. And so it's it's, it's great to see a book that's so warning. It's uh, actually did very well in the national audience. Um, there's a another author I like a lot is Ryan Shoemaker. Who, and he has a story in our, oh, yeah. our upcoming collection, um, The Path from the Gate, that Derek has a has a story in as well. Uh about about um a a kind of mediocre guy, but through eons and eons of, of heaven finally makes it to Godhood and the, the 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 universe that he creates, that he and his wife creates. It's a very funny story. Oh, it is so that sounds great. Funny. I haven't read that one yet. And he he published two stories in Sunstone. The first one about Jesus coming to visit a ward, and the oh, I remember that. Him. It is so funny. I forgot and that with the other. <laughs> and then the other one is about um, Adam and Lilith, and how Lilith kicks Satan's butt. It is so funny. Oh yeah, you're right, Brian Shoemaker. He should write more yeah. for Mormons. Yes. I think he has a collection of stories coming out soon. Oh, I'm so excited. Good. All right. Well, I think this has been great. Is there any other closing thoughts that anyone wants to give before we wrap it up? I'll get Jerry Anton real fast. Oh, yeah. Let's do that. Um, we've, we've published some works of here. We just have a new issue out last Friday, I think, was when the new issue came out. And if you like... Uh, Adam and Lilith stories. There's one sort of in that genre about um, a male angel who tells Nephi to cut off Laban's head, and a female angel who tells him not to, and the ethical debate that breaks out by Tigan Shelton, who just won an email award. And um, there's been almost a piece of humor in every issue, which makes me really happy because it's hard to get funny writers to believe they're worth listening to, just because as a culture we do prioritize tragedy over comedy and. And that's kind of shit. Little comedy in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, yeah, you have to look pretty hard. Uh, I I've read that the Greeks believed that comedy was the higher art form because tragedy is the way we see the world, but comedy is the way the gods see the, our world. So I kind of like that. I like carrying that around. 
I think it was a um, Mike Lawson recently wrote about Jonah being a, a piece of comedy from uh, in the Old Testament. That's the best way to read Jonah, one hundred percent. And his his little essay was a good one to make that point. But I cut you off, Stephen. Yes, he did. No, I don't think he did. Okay. While I was thinking about all your questions, I, I came up with with a really terrible Mormon joke, but it plays on um, kind of the uh, traditional style of, of of joking in that it turns your 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 expectation. So, the uh, the the uh, traditional joke is, "Take my wife, please," and then I add, "I've got plenty." So, it's, oh, oh yeah thanks guys yeah <laughs> so obviously it's a very insensitive joke it definitely comes out of the 50s it's got all sorts of misogyny in it but you can see the structure of the joke take my wife we think it means take my wife for example you're using her as an example to illustrate something yeah. that's the original uh thing inside the listener's head then when you add please you go Oh, there's tension in the marriage. He's trying to get rid of her. So it 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 revises your initial expectation, which is what produces the laughter. And so I was very pleased to come up with I've got plenty to put the uh, the Mormon twist on it because then it revises both previous things. So that was the little terrible Mormon joke that I came up with while thinking about all of these things. I hope I'm not going to get canceled. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I think you had plenty of uh, explanation to it's purely an intellectual exercise at this point. So, yes, but I could be taken out of context. We'll see what happens. <laughs> that was the end of Sunstone. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. And thank you already for listening to the Dialogue Book Report. Uh, Daniel Foster Smith provides our music and edits the show. And our content manager is Emily Jensen. We're part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent podcasts who promote inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LD's tradition, thoughts, thought, arts, and culture, including one from shows like Face and Hat, featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepson. Uh, so listen to everyone listen to this bit, the great podcast that there does. Next episode on Barbie. It's Dumbledore. Hey, spoiler. And then go listen to Stephen Carter's uh, Sunstone podcast, too. Two of my favorite podcasts. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Greetings. My name is Rebecca Deschweinitz, and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Dialogue Podcast Network.